Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, coming to you from the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C. Our coverage here is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, and Finn Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. Later in the program, our roundtable discusses key takeaways from the second day of this Sea Airspace uh, Conference and Trade Show. But first, our conversation with Mike Petters, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries. But before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology. And joining us now is Mike Petters, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries. Uh, Mike, uh, thanks very much for making time with us and it's great to have you back on the show. It's good to be with you again, Vago. Uh, absolute pleasure. We had you on a, a couple of months ago for uh, one of our deep dive uh, strategy conversations, and I commend everybody to check that out. Uh, it's uh, you know certainly been an interesting phase. I think when we talked, where there was there was a lot of hope that the vaccination would have put us on the other side of, of COVID. Obviously, now concerns about the Delta variant. Talk to us a little bit about how that's uh, impacting your operations, uh, and moreover, from a labor uh, standpoint, right? Everybody is having retention and recruitment challenges right now uh, in a very very hot labor market. Uh, talk to us about how you're continuing operations, especially in Mississippi and other places where the vaccination rates are not as, as high as there are elsewhere in the country. Well, thanks, Vago. And I think, you know, our experience is uh, because we're the largest employer in Mississippi and Virginia, our experience is consistent with everybody else's. We're seeing case rates go up. Uh, you know, our vaccination rates are consistent with, uh, you know, this kind of the statewide levels in those spaces, in those areas. Um you know what? Again, what we worry about is uh, if we get if we get discrete uh, skill sets where we have uh, cases. Um, you know, we try to we try to emphasize getting shots. I mean, frankly, uh, it's it's unfortunate that we've got this dichotomy between the the patriotic thing to do to get a shot so we can all get back to work and and uh, for what, lots of reasons people feel like they don't want to do that. Um, we've worked hard on that part of it, communicating for it. Uh, and that's where our emphasis is, is, you know, we'll have some we'll have some masking rules and protection, things like that as we go through this surge. Um, but we're not backing up now. We're we're plowing ahead, um, you know, in a pretty, pretty robust way. So any operational impact? Uh, not at this point. I mean, it's it, I think we're still at the we're still on the front end of the surge, if, if you might. And ho hopefully we are on the back end of it. But I think we're. Realistically, there's probably a little bit more to come before it, it fades away. Um, you know, with it, with a human capital business like ours, it's really been about uh, can we attract talent? Can we train them? Uh, and, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've hired over 6,000 people. Uh, we have, you know, we are an employer of choice in the regions where we are. And so we, uh, we've been able to not only attract kind of our traditional people that want to come to work for us, but we've been able to reach into, you know, other places where like, un like unemployment was high in service industries, for instance, we've been able to convert those folks into 
manufacturers and and uh, pretty robust energy and innovation around how to do that. So we're doing okay with that. Um, let me take uh, you uh, to the question of uh, the Alliant deal. Uh, very important, uh, you guys. For for anybody on the street who wasn't listening, you said you wanted to grow into technical services, and and you guys have done that in a big way in this deal. Unfortunately, your stock hasn't fully recovered since you guys did that. Uh, you know, talking to one uh, Wall Street friend of mine uh, recently. Um, what is it that people are getting wrong about their perception of this deal, why it's important and why it's accretive and, uh, and, and key for you to grow in that sector? Well, I think let's start with why we did it. Um, and then we can talk about the, the Wall Street side of it if you want to. Um, you know, our, our approach for the last 10 years since we've been independent has been to understand where we thought our customers needed to go determine if we had some capability to help them get there um, and uh, and then go either build that organically or go capture that capability so that we can help them get there sooner. Uh, as we have been doing that, we've been building up. I mean, our, our customer set when we started was basically the, the Navy shipbuilders and the, and the Coast Guard. And where we are today is our customer set is, is uh, very broad. Uh, but the philosophy is the same. Understand where your customer is going to go and then try to figure out how they want to get how they're going. What, they, what is it they're going to need to get there um, and what can we provide either organically or by um, investment uh, to help them get there faster? Uh, in the area of the Navy specifically, we know a lot about where they want to go and how and what it's going to take for them to get there. Um, the distributed maritime ops that they're trying to that they've been talking about uh, and been working on a path to do requires a lot more than just ships. It requires networks. It requires artificial intelligence, data analytics, uh, all of the stuff that you know other folks have to provide for other services. Uh, we look at that and think, uh, well, how do we how do we as the as a principal partner? Uh, how do we create capability that's going to allow them to allow them to succeed in that environment? And uh, and so that's what makes the Alliant uh, deal so attractive to us is because if you tick off the things that are are the capabilities that you need to make DMO work, that's what Alliant does. Now, they do a lot of things and, th and they do that for a lot of customers, but they do that and can be applied directly to what we do in our platform business. Uh, as the platform, the kind of the honest broker around the platforms, we have to understand that. Uh, and if we know where it's going, then uh, we can help make it get there fast. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy part of, you know, if we invest in it, it'll create a capability and the Navy will be able to get there a lot sooner. Um, and so that's that's kind of where that comes from. Um, you know, I, I'm not so sure I would agree that Wall Street doesn't get what we have. I mean, that you know, this is uh, it's all about time frame. Uh, this is not a, a transaction that's going to make a difference in 90 days. This is a transaction that's going to be able to transform the way the Navy goes to do its mission over the next five to 10 years. Uh, that's the way we've looked at it. Um, and I would just say, uh, you know, kind of on a smaller scale, uh, our investment in the Columbia Group to get Proteus, uh, if you looked at it on a 90 day or a one year or even a two year um, kind of financial analysis of the, the, did this make sense financially? You'd be hard pressed to have a spreadsheet say that that, that made sense. But that small investment turned into a partnership with Boeing to manufacture the XLUV. That turned into an investment in Hydroid to um, 
to own that business where we do small and medium-sized unmanned vehicles. And that turned into a $50 million investment in a center of excellence for unmanned. Uh, that has all played out over the last several years. At this point, it's hard to imagine an unmanned future for our principal partner that doesn't have us in the middle of it. And so we see that as facilitating their success. This transaction in Alliant is the way that we think about that too. I get that somebody would say, this may not be good for the stock in the next 90 days. Um, my view is that uh, we, if we think about it in terms of 90 days, we wouldn't do any of this stuff. You know, we wouldn't have made the capital investment in the, in, the, in the shipyards. We wouldn't have been spending half a billion dollars over the last five years training people. Uh, we wouldn't have been doing any of the things that we do. We can't think about the business that way. So, so I think the, 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 the context of our stakeholders is if you have a long-term horizon, you pretty much understand this and like it. If you have a short-term horizon, you might have better short-term opportunities. Uh, and uh, anybody who knows anything about shipbuilding knows it's a it's a long horizon business, not a short horizon it business. That, yes. And by the way, uh, shout out, right? You're a former uh, submariner and Proteus was one of the most uh, historic <laughs> subtenders. So, uh, you know, right. good, good one on that um, for all the old old timey ship people out there. That that, that was for you, uh, especially for Chris Cavas, our, our continuing uh, well, contributing Chris, editor. I, we were tied up next to Proteus a couple of times, so I'm, I'm, I, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> um, let, let me take you to the question of people who look at a lion and they say, okay, your, your core shipbuilding, right? I mean, that they're doing technical because their core shipbuilding business, uh, you know, they, they don't have as much confidence about growth in it. Um, we had the Senate Armed Services Committee add $25 billion, uh, to the defense budget, or at least propose doing that. We're going to go through a negotiation on that. Um, what's, what's the naval business outlook as you see it, the defense business outlook, right? I mean, I mean, it's been a couple of months since we last spoke. I think people didn't expect seeing another $25 billion. Uh, the question is whether or not this is $25 billion more before a downturn uh, that comes, so sort of a last salve. How do, you, how do you see this increase in the environment going forward? Well, I think uh, I, I certainly can't speak for the Congress here and the, what the committee is seeing. I think that it's not hard to just be aware. You are aware. I, you know, in your podcast, you talk about there's an awareness out there that uh, – our our peer competition, our pacing threat is uh, they're running a pretty stiff race right now, and so how do you how do you um, maintain the advantages that we have that matter? And so I think that's that's kind of the way that turns out is is um, one of the ways you do that is you apply resources, but but your strategy is really not what you say; it's how you it's it's what you apply those resources to. You know, uh, I learned a long time ago in business that. Um, you can't really be the strategic thinker on the in the company unless you also co control the capital allocation. You know, otherwise you write a lot of papers, but but it's the way you it's the way you allocate your capital that is actually your strategy. So the process you're watching there and that you're talking to is the nation is trying to decide how to allocate its capital, and um, you know, and I think it's a recognition that we've got some strategic challenges out there, and we've got to find a find a way to, to uh, be successful in that environment. Um, what I, I want to ask you, um, last question on this sort of the evolving strategic environment that's changed even since last we spoke. Uh, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Hyten, came out and uh, discussed an October uh, war game in, in which U.S. forces got uh, trounced uh, by Chinese forces. It was a defense of Taiwan uh, scenario. 
and in the wake of that, he made the case that it's time to rethink war fighting approaches, capability development. Uh, at the same time, you've got uh, folks on the Hill uh, and in the administration talking about comp competition and the competition outlook. How do you see the business environment going forward? Because you could look at it as, okay, if they're going to do a whole bunch of uh, capability development changes, it could have implications for some of your platforms. I mean, I know everybody thinks about carriers, but it could be across the board. Uh, or no impact and focus more on the effectors, which is the message we get from the Navy. On the other hand, you've also got a competition environment uh, that's that's different with members of Congress uh, talking about you know whether or not there should be further consolidation, importance of competition, right? You're the only maker of big deck aircraft carriers. How do you see this environment that we're in right now? And, and what does your crystal ball tell you as you look a couple of years forward? Yeah, so let's kind of take that in two parts, if you don't mind. Um, first of all, I would actually be really concerned if we had a war game that came back and said everything's okay. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a Latin teacher in high school that, um, you know, his, his target score on his exams was 70. He said, if I give you an exam and everybody in the class, and there were only like 12 of us had taken Latin. Who takes Latin, right? But um, he, he, there were like 12 of us in this class. He says, if all of you got 100, then I wouldn't learn anything from that. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create exams where, you know, 70 is kind of what I'm shooting for because I want to ask you stuff you don't know. And I want to see what you don't know. So it doesn't bother me that we have uh, war games. Frankly, I'm happy that we have war games that come back and say, we got things we got to go work on. I think that's, I think the day we get to a place where the war games come back and say, oh, we got this, that's the day you need to wake up and, and uh, you know, go screaming for the exits, because I think we will have, we will have missed the opportunities that we have in front of us. Which, which unfortunately we've, we've tended to do sometimes to justify capabilities and platforms. And we're trying, I think, to be more honest, at least if you listen yeah, to folks I, about I, how we I, go I, about this. And I, and I also think that kind of buried in that, you know, it's, it's newsworthy that, uh, we have a war game where things didn't go well. Think about that for a minute. I think that speaks to the challenge we have uh, collectively with uh, dialogue about risk. You know, if you go to if you go to Silicon Valley and you want to hire somebody from Silicon Valley and you look at their resume, they will list all of the projects that they worked on that they that failed because they will see they see rapid failure as being the fastest way to develop yourself. Uh, you know, Vago, and you and I have talked about this before. Um, I keep coming back to uh, the the Gemini project, right? We put a we put a capsule up in space every sixty days. Something went wrong on every one of them, and after we got the Gemini twelve, the first one to go well, we said, "Okay, let's go to the moon," right? Um, we are, have lost the ability to talk about risk uh, in this rapidly rapidly accelerating technological pace. And that is going to be a big handicap for us. And I think a little bit of what the general was saying, and I, I wasn't there, so I'm, I'm, I'm relying on your reporting for that in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. Um, but, a lot, but I think what he was scratching at was, we're going to have to allocate to re resources to things that are not going to work so that we can develop those things that will work. And we're going to have to do that in a rapid way. Um, and our system is struggles with that, frankly. It, it struggles with, you know, if you if you um, if you go forward, how many fixed price development programs have we seen in our careers? Right. How did they turn out? I mean, that, that's sort of the the budgeting process tends to be a fixed price process. The R&D process 
shouldn't be. So how do you how do you how do you how do you reconcile all of the risk that you have in in techno, technolo, technological development, programmatic development? How do you reconcile that risk with a with an long term risk, multi year risk kind of you know over time? How do you reconcile all of that? With a with a uh, a budget process that tends to be a- it, it's absolutely annual process and it's absolutely a fixed price process, we haven't figured that out yet. And I think that we've been able to get by for you know for decades with uh, you know kind of working our way around that. But I think that this this future that we have, we'd better get that figured out. How do we talk to the American taxpayers about we're going to invest some of your money in things that are not going to work? so that we can help keep you more secure. That's a really tough conversation to have. And I, I think we've got to, our best minds have to figure out how to have that conversation. And, and, and how do you have that in an environment where there is a new focus on profit? Uh, there is going to be um, uh, maybe a little bit more of a competition focus. Um, I mean, how do you see that element of it impacting the industry? Well, I mean, we've there's been lots of kind of back and forth on on uh, profit. How much how much return should you make? Uh, you know, if you if you the fundamental question. I mean, there's lots of things in the far about how to set the right level return and all that sort of thing. But the fundamental question is is how do you attract more capital to this business? There are lots of things that that New York can invest in. How do you? How do we, as a national security enterprise, how do we create mechanisms that's going to attract more capital to the business? I mean, profit margin is an interesting metric. Um, uh, cash flow return on investment is an interesting metric. There are lots of ways that you can do this that can actually make um, you know people want to put money into your enterprise. But if if what you do is you look at if you look at these returns and you say that's just another cost. And I'm reducing scope so that I can pay more profit. If that's the way that your your equation is working, then what you will do is you will reduce the profit to increase scope, and you won't attract any capital. That, I mean, it's that simple. So, uh, so there's a balance here. Of, I mean, nobody in the defense industry makes the profit margins that Silicon Valley makes. Nobody makes that. Um, if you're an investor, where were you? Where have you been putting your money for the last ten years? You've been putting your money in Silicon Valley. Right. And Silicon Valley has the resources to invest in lots of pretty cool stuff that make our make our lives a lot better. So somewhere in there is a is is the right place to be for for this industry. I'm not saying we need to be where they are. But if you're talking about national security has to be linked to technological development, that's going to require resources. We've got to find ways to bring lots of investment to it, not just not just taxpayer investment. Then there's a that's a very sophisticated discussion to have. Are, are you concerned that the nature of the discussion is changing and maybe getting negative for, or you know, that there could be a legislative or policy uh, impediments to to being able to access that capital? I mean, this is uh, now I'm old. Uh, a little bit of a pendulum here. It kind of goes back and forth, um, and uh, you know, we're at that point in the pendulum where it's it's kind of where yeah things could be could be a little bit more constrained. Um, that's going to re- that's going to reduce the amount of investment that comes and then the pendulum will swing the other way. And so it's, it just will go back and forth. So uh, I'm not overly con- concerned. I'm not overly concerned. I'm observing. And more deals in technical services. 
And just just as a warning to people on the street <laughs> who may not. <laughs> well, look, if it makes sense, if if uh, if our customers are need a capability that we can't provide, but we might be the best provider of it, sure. Um, you know, we've been we've been uh, we've created a balance sheet over the last ten years that's investment grade, and and uh, you know this transaction maintains that. So we're we're excited about that, and we have. You know, we have the capacity to continue to make those kinds of critical investments. We're not getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger. We're really focused on uh, capabilities. Um, on unmanned, um, since last we spoke, the Navy has, has laid out its unmanned uh, vision. A uh, lot of documents uh, from the Chief of Naval Operations, from Admiral Gilday, all the way over to Lauren Selby uh, at the Office of Naval Research. Does the Navy have as clear of an unmanned strategy and plan as as you need as the CEO of the nation's leading shipbuilding company? Well, I, look, I don't think anybody can can um, precisely predict where we're going to be in five to ten years in the unmanned world. I think that you have to think about what are the broad what are the broad parameters that we're going to be operating. And I think the Navy's laid that out pretty well. I mean, it certainly laid it out well enough for us to go make pretty substantial investments in it. Um, and uh, I think the undersea folks have have a pretty clear idea of what they want to go do, and they are starting to discover that there's a lot of other things they can do now. Um, I think the surface community is still wrestling with this a little bit. Uh, they're getting more familiar with the capabilities of the technology and how that might be factored into their conops. Um, so, but I, you know, I think it's all on a path, and I think the Navy has framed it appropriately. Uh, and certainly, uh, we feel like we have, we have what we need to know where we need to go. Mike, thanks very much as always. Good to see you again, Vago. It's always fun to talk with you. Uh, absolute pleasure. Have a great Navy League. You bet. Thank you. And joining us now is our roundtable with Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner who leads uh, the Center for Defense Concepts and Technologies at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, and my good friend Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners, one of the leading uh, uh, folks uh, covering this industry and sector uh, at a strategic level on, on Wall Street uh, and in Washington. Uh, guys, uh, thanks very much. Here we are on uh, day, day, you know, towards the end of day two, one more day of, of Navy League, the first time everybody is committed convening uh, in person. Brian, Brian, you moderated the congressional uh, breakfast this morning. You've got another event that uh, you're moderating as well. From your standpoint, what are some of the key takeaways from this show, especially on the second day? You know, some folks talking about the comments the Chief of Naval Operations uh, made uh, about the defense industry that, hey, you guys, uh, you know, are really pushing your own agenda as opposed to our agenda. Uh, you know, we discussed that on day one uh, of, of the podcast as well, that, well, absent some would say leadership from the Navy, the industry is going to do what it does. From your standpoint, what are some of the key takeaways? Well, thanks for having me on, Vago. Uh, from the breakfast this morning, one of the big takeaways was the challenge imposed by a new CR. So if we get continuing resolution into the coming year, uh, the Navy's got $15 billion that's misaligned, meaning they're about 10% of their budget is in the wrong places, including in operations and maintenance. They're going to be short operations and maintenance funds if we just continue the FY21 budget into 22. Um, another big takeaway was that the Senate Appropriations Committee plans on, for any that they make the Navy keep, meaning
remaining uh, cruisers, they might force the Navy to not retire or LCS, they make the Navy keep. They're going to add back in the operations and support funds needed to keep those ships in the fleet, which is an important consideration that the Navy has expressed concerns about. Uh, so I think those are two big takeaways. Uh, the other thing is we did address the CNO's comments yesterday in the panel. And uh, from, from the Navy and congressional standpoint, uh, they, they felt like if uh, the Navy or the industry continues to stay uh, on pace with regard to cost, schedule, and performance, then they don't have anything to worry about and that they, we should stop focusing on what the industry might be doing in the back offices of the Congress and focus instead on industry's performance and the products that they've been uh, bought or is hired to build. Byron, uh, you know, you've been to a couple of these uh, shows over the years and analyzed uh, them. Uh, from, from your standpoint, what are the key takeaways? Because you, you've been on the floor and you've been in a lot of these briefings, but also you were in the room when the CNO was making his comments. Well, I think I'll start just with the show and the flavor of the show. And you go to these things just to see what's new and what, what's, what are people trying to show to the Navy? I, I found the, some of the more fascinating displays, the uh, sail drone exhibit. Um, which, you know, has had some interesting legs. It's a very interesting technology. There's some other uh, companies that are also offering similar products. I think one is an, another submariner who, uh, who is leading one of those charges. But a lot going on in the autonomous area in general. I think even the fact that IBM and the Autonomous Mayflower Project is one of the sponsors of the app for this program. So it's good to see that kind of technology here still has some legs and traction back to the congressional markups and so on happening. I don't think Congress has necessarily been convinced of the uh, the validity, the validity, the worth of some of these technologies, but at least at least people are able to kick some of the tires and engage with some of the representatives of those companies. So those are the, that's to me, is the real value of, of something like this. Um, I should also point out you're a world-class sailor. And uh, of course, no. you know, having an unmanned, an unmanned system with a Kevlar sail and solar power, solar panels that could be serving an ISR capacity is certainly interesting. <laughs> what did you think of the CNO's uh, comments? You know, you can understand the frustration that he had because, hey, look, you know, we built this budget plan. We want to retire, uh, you know, free up the money from his standpoint. Congress has come back, at least the Senate Armed Services Committee, and said we want to put the money back in. And, of course, every contractor, whether you're Boeing, is lobbying for more F-18s and P-8s and all of the things that were cut out. That's the natural order of things unless you sort of bring all the CEOs in and engage with them. From your standpoint, what's the right way to try to do this at a time when we're trying to make the, the trade-offs? Because there are those who observe that it probably wasn't that constructive to sort of come into a major industry event and say, well, you guys are being bad about this when they've got to re respond to guys like you on it's, the street going like, hey, you missed earnings. It's engagement, engagement, engagement. And uh, things like the F-18EFs, uh, okay, I can get it to a degree, you know, in the age old concerns about the gaps that you may have if you're kind of reaching for the thing up on the tree when you don't have have the program ready on the ground to uh, to continue your capability going forward. But the comments were a little curious, I thought, particularly about about uh, about aircraft, about the tactical air fleet. Um, and I should point out that uh, those comments were after uh, we spoke uh, to Mike Petters. So for all of you who just listened to the interview, a uh, great interview we did with Mike, uh, one of the more thoughtful uh, executives in this industry, we didn't have a chance to discuss that because we were uh, uh, we, we conducted the interview just as that event was going on. And of course, we had Admiral uh, Casey Moten uh, on uh, yesterday. Brian, um, you have been looking at advanced warfighting concepts for years. Um, is the Navy doing a good enough job 
framing, explaining what those warfighting concepts uh, are like. You know, uh, you were kind enough to invite us uh, to uh, a number of folks in Washington, and we taped uh, your discussion with Elaine Luria, Congresswoman uh, from uh, the Tidewater, uh, obviously representing Norfolk Naval Base, and she's a retired United States Navy commander and a Naval Academy graduate. Really fantastic uh, summation of the fact that she thought that the Navy didn't have some of these plans. From your standpoint, where are we now? Does the Navy recognize it as a challenge and a problem? Because if you look at listen to leadership, there's this tendency of saying, oh, no, no, you know, we got all of this figured out. Yeah, they don't have a good they don't have it all figured out. And they've done a terrible job of really explaining it to people. Uh, and that, that came up in the breakfast this morning. I mean, part of the, the Hill's concern is the Navy forwards these new technologies, doesn't have a good plan to get them there. And they have not yet um, articulated how they fit into an operational concept that's going to achieve the war fighting or deterrence ends that the Navy has identified. So from the perspective of Hill staffers and members, they just don't feel like they're being, you know, transparent enough with the with the Hill and that they're being, uh, I guess, um, a clear with regard to the warfighting concept these technologies are supposed to enable. But most importantly, they're concerned that the technologies are not going to be able to manifest themselves in the time frame that the Navy anticipates uh, because the investment's not there or the plan's not there or the roadmap has not been identified or implemented. So that, that the concern is really the narrative I mean, you know, in a lot of ways. And then out of that narrative, does a plan come that actually could be executed within the funding constraints that the Navy's under. Byron, you know, you've been tracking this stuff as well. I mean, do you think the Navy's doing a good enough job and being clear enough about what its intentions are? Um, I think the intentions are there. I mean, I think if you look at the long range plan, the battle force, uh, you know, 2045, you know, a mix of manned and unmanned. I think I think the key issue is can you accelerate the tests and can you get can you get more things out in the fleet? now, uh, like in the next two to three years. So you really can see, are these concepts, uh, are they valid? I mean, are they, can you stress them? Can you put them in the hands of the sailors who are actually going to use this stuff and and break it and, and play with it and exercise with it? And I think that's when you're going to get more buy-in. And otherwise, it's just PowerPoint presentations and uh, exhibits uh, and some concepts. But uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Do do we have the kind of experimentation? Right, I mean, you've, you've written about experimentation, and in fact, uh, when you were in the Navy, you were making some of these same cases, right? Um, do we have as robust an experimentation agenda as we should? Uh, no, but it, they're definitely moving in the right direction. So the integrated battle problem uh, and the uh, large battle part of the large fleet exercises that they're doing are the way to go. So the unmanned battle problem that they did a couple of months ago, which tried to use unmanned systems to do some missions like anti-submarine warfare and surveillance and targeting uh, completely with just unmanned systems. Those are fantastic, and it's a way to demonstrate that these technologies can actually operate at sea, work together, communicate with each other, and you know achieve the end. Um, that's really important. The Navy needs to expand that dramatically and probably put a lot more effort into that than into the kind of long-term R&D that may not yield a benefit for another decade or more, just because I think that's what's going to get them the credibility on the Hill with their partners who are going to be holding the checkbook. Um, let me uh, just, uh, we, uh, Byron, uh, joined us on the program and we talked uh, about uh, the vice chairman, uh, John Hyten's uh, comments at uh, National Defense uh, Industrial Association's Emerging Technologies Institute about the war game where U.S. forces got uh, their their butts kicked trying to defend Taiwan against the Chinese attack. Uh, and, and General Hyten talked in detail about it. But 
on one sense, it was good that he was publicly talking about the defeat and saying, hey, we need to rethink concepts of operations and our warfighting approach, as well as the capabilities we develop. On the other hand, there were those who would say, there's nothing new about that. I mean, good war games should be stressing you where they expose uh, defects from your standpoint. What did you find most interesting about his comments uh, on, on that? Is it the fact that we got beaten? Is it the fact that um, we're reconsidering where we are, right? I mean, he said that each of the service chiefs have an understanding that, you know, what what, what did you, because this is the first time you and I are talking about this, at least with a with a tape recorder running. Yeah, I, the most important thing to me was the context in which he said it. So he said it at the Emerging Technologies Institute Forum, you know, for the, the launch of that center. Um, and uh, what he was identifying as a need for new operational concepts, not necessarily new technologies. So it was interesting that a lot of people took away from his comments that, oh, we need new technology, we need directed energy, we need space, we need hypersonics. But what he was really trying to say was we need new ways of fighting and new metrics for success uh, because the old metrics of success of, you know, we're going to kill this many enemy ships or blow this much you know, enemy forces out of the water, that's not going to make it anymore. We're going to come, come up with new operational concepts that use, you know, some kind of different metric like I need to get a decision-making advantage or I've got to be able to um, put my enemies in some dilemmas that prevent them from actually achieving their end. So it's about deterring or preventing the enemy from being successful more than it is killing as many enemy as possible, which you know, as a new way of thinking about their U.S. role, more of a status quo power, trying to keep things the way they are, uh, rather than we're going to, you know, go and change, you know, we're going to change our adversary's mind by killing a lot of them. So I think that's what he was really getting as the need for new operational concepts rather than new technology. So it was interesting that he did it at that 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 context, because I think a lot of people took the wrong lesson away from it. Um, I, the interesting thing, uh, and I commend everybody to check out your conversation with Elaine Luria because it was fantastic. And I thought where she deserves credit was, what are we trying to achieve? Because right. when you talk about winning, what does winning mean? And increasingly, folks have been talking about deterrence. And indeed, John Richardson would talk about it's about deterrence. It's is is the most important, like not today. Um, so, very briefly, go ahead. Well, I think there's, it's a really interesting tension. You kind of see it in this show a bit about distributed fleet and ship size. So, you know, you look at a, a thirty-two cell. Uh, Constellation class frigate, and then you talk to some of the people about the future DDGX program, uh, the next generation submarine. You're talking about larger vessels than the current current ships that they're going to replace. So there's there's still a lot of tension, I think, that has to be worked out in how these operational play, concepts are going to play through. And I've found it fascinating this data about ship size because I kind of thought we had that resolved maybe a generation ago. Uh, you wanted to be in a bigger vessel that could sustain itself, that could probably take more punishment than a greater number of, of smaller distributed vessels. So. Uh, it, you know, things come uh, full circle in 30 seconds. Is the Navy thinking as creatively about these operational concepts, given that you've been focused on trying to drive that debate? Is the Navy being as creative as it needs to be? Not yet. They're still kind of focused on the attrition mindset of I need to be able to, as Byron was saying, survive a lot of attacks, deliver a lot of firepower, you know, more about that attrition mindset. But clearly Heighton and some of the other parts of the Joint Force, the J-7, the Joint Warfighting Concept, are moving in a different direction. And I think the Navy needs to get on board with that because the tail chase of continuing to try to get more and more hardened and deliver more and more fires is just not going to work. Guys, always a pleasure having you on. Thanks uh, very, very much. Hope you guys have a good uh, last day of uh, Navy League. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Vago. Always a pleasure, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.